0: Um, <clears throat> there's a, there's a turn in, uh, chapter five, so that's kind of where we'll start. And this is also a particular, uh, import to, I think, men, me- men's meetings. A lot of it has to do with sexual purity, and, uh, so I thought it'd be good just to kind of hang out in chapters five and six a little bit this morning. Um All right, and I'm going to go back and forth between the ESV and the NIV because well, for reasons that will become apparent once we get into this. Um All right, so yeah, like we we mentioned in church, Paul spends the first several chapters um <clears throat> really clarifying the gospel and what it does when it comes into our lives. It makes us see everything differently. He starts to identify the, the root problems amongst the Corinthian church, and it's a problem of, of um, divisions, but at the heart of those divisions are um, what, a word that he uses. I'll talk more about this tonight, but is, is arrogance, or uh, depending on our translation, be puffed up he he uses that word quite a bit and it's i think it's only used in this letter but they're puffed up and i think that's a perfect way to describe what he's coming against because you know how we talked about uh, in church that it was they were putting their faith and putting their their they were boasting in wisdom and in apparent power um but Paul is trying to um, you know, basically if if they have become a big balloon, he's coming and just popping the balloon <laughs> and, and showing that it's just full of, of empty air. Right? It's all on the outside, and they are they are puffed up. And so here in chapter five, um, he says, uh, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. so, so I'm getting the re- these reports of divisions. And you guys are taking sides and forming factions and, and kind of becoming puffed up against one another. Which, by the way, he says, you know, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up elsewhere in the letter. He also says in chapter 13 that love is not puffed up, is not arrogant. Uh, the ESV <coughs> translates it arrogant uh, most of the time. Um, but the verb form is to puff up or to be puffed up. Um, and I think this is a perfect word for what Paul is coming against it 's just this emptiness and this <laughs> oversized uh view of oneself that 's rooted in in the flesh so he says, so let me get right to it guys you know i 've just described he 's just described the, the cross and the and the <clears throat> totally different way that Jesus <clears throat> operates he doesn't come and kind of perfect your wisdom he doesn't come and per- perfect your power he actually comes and undermines the whole basis of your wisdom what you think is wisdom and what you think is power and the cross undoes and the cross just deflates all of that puffed up and he talks about jeremiah let not the wise man boast in his wisdom because it's just it's just air let not the mighty man boast in his might because what is our power before the almighty god let that or wealth, or anything like that. So there's these things that we boast in, that we find our identity in, that are just emptiness. And so he says, so let me, let me get right down to it, guys. You, you, there is actually right in front of you, there's just immorality happening, sexual impurity that's happening, and you're doing nothing about it. You're boasting in your status. You're boasting in how, what, you know, the power of God is moving among you. And here's this guy, who has married, or is living with, or is sleeping with his mother-in-law. And this would be like a stepmother. Um, and he says, and this isn't even, you guys are boasting in, in who you are. This isn't even accepted among the, the Gentiles. Right? So you've gone beyond even the worldly sense of morality in the name of freedom in Christ. Um. And so what's happening here is this guy is, is in this immoral relationship. And either their sense of freedom was approving and saying, or it was either the, the man himself who was saying, I'm free in Christ to be able to do this, or it was the community who, who was saying, we're okay with this because everybody's free in Christ. Right? He can do what he wants. If that's what he wants to do, and then you know, we're all in Christ. We're all free in Christ. And he says, "And you are puffed up. You are arrogant." <clears throat> and this is where he starts to 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 isolate some of the some of the particular issues. He says, "You should rather be mourning if this is happening amongst your community. Then you 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 know right there, your your arrogance, your your, your puffed upness is uh, is totally baseless." You should rather, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. He says, this is, this is a matter of, of church discipline. And you guys need to rise up as a community and do something about this, okay? And he says, if I was there, <laughs> I'm not there, but if I was there, and even in spirit, I am there, <clears throat> we can judge this right now. This is just wrong. He says, this is a no-brainer. So he's pointing out this situation is a no-brainer. He said, even in the world, this is wrong. So it should definitely not be happening amongst the people of God. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are, so he's like, whatever delay you're sensing, you know, whatever, whatever's causing your inaction, your complicity in this, you can go ahead. You have my authority you now have no more excuse. You need to do something about this guy. He, you need to cut him off from the community. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, what? That's a that's a troublesome phrase. What do you think that, that What do you think that that's getting at? flesh here be like the sin nature uh, rather than being his physical body is like his lust yeah i think that that's i think that that's valid i mean paul uses flesh in that way pretty often (coughs) in some in some ways flesh sometimes flesh is kind of neutral it's like the the physical aspect of our nature in some sense yeah
1: well, how does Satan actually uh, go ahead and destroy
0: that? The sinful nature. Yeah. Yeah, that's the that's the question. What's going on here? What is what is Paul referring to here? It sounds to me like he's saying this guy's just better off dead. <laughs> <laughs> just let him go
2: die, and it'd be better for him and for everyone else.
0: Yeah. The way I read it is okay. like, don't save him from mm-hmm. the ignominy and consequences of his sin which could be restorative and show him the air of his ways. And what would be what would be saving that? How would they be going about
1: consoling like, him. Being his friend. Yeah. You know. Giving him emotional support.
0: <clears throat> emotional support. Or even just a place in the community. He's saying He's equating delivering his flesh to the destruction of Satan with removal from the community. Um, if you read this closely, this is, this is one of the places where you've got you to go with Paul and you've got to hear Paul not necessarily quoting the Old Testament, but operating within the, the world of the Old Testament, the story of the Old Testament. Okay? So he says, your boasting is not good, then he moves to this metaphor of the, the leaven. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's yeast, right? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. So there's, there's two things going on here. One is the nature of leaven, and that is this little tiny thing, it affects everything. So he's saying, this guy remaining in your community is not just an individual being free in Christ. It is affecting the entire community, right? What goes on in the bedroom of two consenting adults does not stay in the bedroom of two consenting adults in the body of Christ. It affects the whole community, right? The most private aspect of your life has very public and very real communal consequences in the body of Christ. So that's the nature of leaven. But then there's this cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. What does that even mean? What's he referring to there?
2: Like holiness, basically?
0: Yeah, uh, cleansing. But what, what is that? Uh, he says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And I think that really is the key verse that unlocks everything that's going on here. So immediately, our minds go to, okay, Passover. What do we know about Passover? On the first day of Passover, what happened? They sacrificed a lamb. What'd they do with the lamb? They ate it. What'd they do with its blood? They also took its blood, and they marked out the dwelling places. What was that meant to do?
2: Keep sin away? Keep Keep the angel of
0: death away. The destroyer. The destroyer was coming through and the blood marked out those who were in the community of God versus those who were in the world. And as long as you were in this blood covered by the blood, the destroyer would pass through, all right? So they say, remove this man from your community. And in doing so, he is now outside of the protection of the blood of Jesus. And whatever is going on out there is destruction, right? It's only within the community of God, those who are marked out by the blood of Jesus, who are in Christ, who will escape the destruction that comes on those who are sinful. Um, The blood of Jesus does atone for sins. But the blood of the Passover lamb was not atoning for sins. There is blood in the Old Testament that atones for sins. But the Passover blood Mm
1: -hmm.
0: made a distinction between those who who, who were part of God's people and those who were not. Does that make sense? The Passover blood was not a sin sacrifice. The Passover blood was a, was a... a marker of those that God was delivering from bondage and delivering from the destruction that was coming on the evil empire of Egypt. Does that make sense? The destruction is coming on the sinners. And... This Passover blood is, is a sign and a, 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 a marker of those who will not undergo that destruction. These are the people of God. Um, and so the Passover story is one of freedom from bondage, not of forgiveness of sins. So we gotta remember that sometimes. Now, they come out into the wilderness, they become guilty of sin very quickly. And so now we need atoning sacrifices. Now there's, a, now there's a, a, a dual problem. The people that I've delivered have now fallen back into the same sins. Mm-hmm. Egypt is still in them. What are we going to do about this? The blood of Jesus is, is both. It's a liberation from the powers and a cleansing and a forgiving, forgiving of sins. But the Passover story, which is the story that he's talking about here, is one of deliverance and membership within the community of God. All right, so this is how deep Paul goes when he, when he just says something like, Christ, to our, he's not just cherry-picking a metaphor. His whole vision of their community is shaped by, his whole vision of how to address this issue of sexual immorality within the community is shaped by the Exodus story. The way that he is saying, right, here's how you need to deal with this. cleanse out the old leaven. So, after the Passover lamb was sacrificed, and they put the blood on the doors, then they were to go through their houses and get rid of all leaven. And that, was, that marked the seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay, so, so he says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. We've been brought into this community to be delivered from the destruction that comes on those who live according to the world according to the flesh destruction is coming we are in this and, and the curse remains on those but for us who are within the blood of Jesus so now that we are within this community the next step is to then cleanse out all of the leaven and get rid of it it says get rid of all leaven from your from your homes yeah
1: can you call that sanctification
0: yeah, I think that that's symbolic of um, the blood marks out those who are, belong to God as justification. If, if you want to use, it, use those terms, yeah, I think so. And then for seven days, we're to live this life of we're done with leaven and we get it out of our homes. Okay, so that's what he says. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So that marks the feast of unleavened, the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So now it's time to get rid of all the leaven. Because even if you have a little leaven, it's going to get into everything, and it's going to, you know, we're to be different, right? Therefore, celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So in just a couple of verses, he has placed the community, he said, Place yourselves in the Exodus story. Know what's going on. God has brought you out of Egypt. And the blood is now over the doorposts of your home. So what's next? Purify your homes of leaven and celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so he says, guys, where, where are you? See yourselves in this story. Thank God. You know, we're free in Christ. We've been delivered, right? They were boasting of their freedom. That's deliverance. But what happens after freedom? Purification. Once you become free, then you become purified. And the, you know, kind of the way of... We've heard it said a lot is God brings you out of Egypt. Then he has to... God has to get you out of Egypt. Then he gets Egypt out of you. <clears throat> right? And so he says, you guys, don't, you're, you're missing this step where now that you're free, you become holy. Your calling is to be free, but it's a much deeper f- calling than just now being approved in what, you would, what your flesh wants to do. Now we've got to get rid of everything that's not of God because we're free now. Does that make sense? It's powerful. And like the story of Exodus, it's a simple, but it is, it is, <laughs> it is, a, it is a meta-narrative and it's the, it's the narrative that Paul lives in. And when he approaches these complex problems in the church of Corinth, he approaches it with Exodus. He goes, we're going to apply the word here. All right? I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immor- immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. He's like, listen, you guys aren't... (laughs) The whole point is that as the people of God, we become purified, we become holy, we become distinct and separate from the way that the world does it. I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. And these things that he names are very close to the offenses in Deuteronomy that the, the sentence on these offenses are removal, to be cut off from Israel. He's like, there are, there are ways of living that if they continue within the people of God will corrupt the entire community. And so what needs to be done with those people, that's what the old leaven is. You've got to just remove it or else it's going to ruin everything else these sins are so bad because they're so corrosive and so they need to be removed. So he's trying to get them to see that, yes, we are free, but we also need to protect the purity and the holiness of the community and there are certain kinds of people, if they persist in, in insisting that they are part of the people of God, while also continuing in these things then they're violating the very God that, the nature of the very God that delivered them and they need to be cut off because their actions are, are betraying uh, the character of God and so he's calling he's not necessarily he is calling out this guy but even more so he's calling out the, for, the community for being so lax in their vision of the purity of the community you guys, this is basic stuff. You, he says, you don't even really need the Bible to understand that this is wrong. The Gentiles think this is wrong. Get this guy out of here. Don't let him continue. And But the end goal is that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The end goal is restoration. Of course. But he says, this guy's never going to find restoration unless you let him experience... The, the isolation from the people of God. His sins deserve being cut off, and he needs that reality needs to sink into his life. He needs to not be protected, not be passed over. The destroyer mm-hmm. needs to come yeah. and afflict his life, <clears throat> and he needs to realize that he has brought that affliction on himself by the way that he's lived. So, you guys, you need to let... You need to let the destruction and the consequences of his sin fall on him. Stop covering him. Get him out of your community. Because it's destroying him and it's destroying your community. There needs to be a separation. So he's calling for a separation. This guy needs to be outside and you guys need to be inside. You will be purified and he will be kind of shocked into waking up. Right? But it's all, in that, it's all in that story of Passover. I think that's so cool. How Paul is so soaked in that. It's such a part of his mindset that when he approaches very practical situations of judgment, he, do, he does it by helping them see where they fit in the story. Where do we fit in the story? Where are we in the story? Well, lamb has been sacrificed, but you still got all this leaven. We need to purge the house of leaven. Talk about living a life in the word. You know, he's not, Paul's not a verse of the day guy. His whole view of the world is shaped by these stories, by who God is and the way that he interacts with his people. So he's calling out the community for tolerating this sin. Yeah, the sin's bad, the guy needs to, but you guys need to get it together. Stop boasting about freedom. When you got all this leaven in the house, what good is, what good is the freedom if you're not going to go all the way and celebrate the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Then the, the blood of the Lamb is for naught if you're not going to continue in doing the things that God called the people to do. Then he calls them out for um, going to law against one another. He says, then this is a worldly thing, too. Um, and that this may be related to the guy who was sleeping with his stepmother, because that itself may have been kind of a... Uh, There may have been like an inheritance or some wealth that was involved in that union. And so it would have been... That's why he keeps talking about um, sexually immoral and greedy. And so the, he may have been like, this is sexually immoral, but it's also <clears throat> greediness, right? It's based in, in money. And it actually could have been a really wealthy guy who was a patron of the church. And the reason that they weren't coming after him was, you know, well, oh, he's free in Christ. And we also like all the all the cash flow that he provides you know in our community because um, we we know about the Corinthian church that there was a big disparity of wealth, and if this guy was a really wealthy one, then you could see them being more lax in, in calling him to holiness um, and so basically Paul would be saying like you don't need this guy's money you know because his sin is going to Bring everything, his sin's going to corrupt everything. Put him outside along with his immorality and his greed and purify the community. So then he talks about just kind of the worldly way of, of taking each other to court and, and going in front of human judges. He says, You don't understand what's happened here. You as a community are god's holy people and you are called to be judges of the earth even angels he says he says you are god's rulers and you're submitting yourselves to human courts you really you really haven't grasped grasped who you are and who god is calling you to be and he kind of taunts them in verse five he says i say this to your shame can it be that there is no one among you wise enough? Hey, all you wise guys. Hey, you <laughs> philosophers. How is it that as soon as you have a grievance against one another, you suddenly become like incapable of, of thinking through a situation? Like, Where's your wisdom? You don't need to go to court. But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? We talked a little bit about that. And when you, when you are changed by the word of the cross, you approach grievances in a completely different way. And then he, he reiterates kind of the list of sins that he's calling them to judge, judge themselves in light of Scripture. You're free. God has delivered you. God's transformed you. So think like it and live like it. Don't be deceived. Don't don't take the freedom and deliverance and go on living in the way that you were before. That's not the kingdom of God. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, and that's the rule of God, the dominion of God. You were called to inherit... A kingdom. You're a holy nation. Kingdom of priests. Again, that's straight from Exodus nineteen. This is what we were saved for. To rule and reign and judge. And you guys can't even judge. You gotta go to you gotta go to judge Judy to figure your life out. You know? Yeah. But it's petty. You know, and it's, it's, it's immature and they're boasting. And again, he keeps, he keeps kind of poking holes in their, in their puffiness. He's like, here's a big, here's a, here's a big glaring error. Uh, you got a guy amongst your community sleeping with a stepmom. What's that about? And you guys keep dragging each other into court. So he's like, you guys, you're not seeing things clearly. You become puffed up and you become uh, deceived. You think you are things that you're not. All right. And he says, and such were some of you. Were. But you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All right, so then he gets into this thing, and this is this is an important, like, rhetorical uh, concept to understand in Paul's letters. All right, he be, he enters into what's called a diatribe. Has anyone, has anyone heard of that before? A diatribe is when you kind of take both sides. You set up this. Uh, yeah, you set up kind of a, a straw man, even though that's... Yeah, it's a, it's a fictional debate opponent, you know. Well, you'd say this. I mean, well, then, then i say this, and you say this. So he sets up kind of a fictional sparring partner here. But apparently these were things that they were saying to him, things that he had heard in response in his exchange with the Corinthians. And so this is where the NIV is helpful because... There are no quotation marks in, in the Greek, right? These are all editorial decisions, translation decisions that are made. Um, so do you see in verse 12 in the ESV, it says, all things are lawful for me. He's, he's putting that in the, in the mouth of the Corinthians. He's like, you would say, even though he doesn't say directly, you say but he's in this diatribe, which is this back and forth. All things are lawful for me. In other words, that's what they were claiming. Or that was kind of one of their defenses. All things are lawful, you know, we've been set free. And he says, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. He's like, Paul is the apostle of freedom in Christ, right? Deliverance. He's even said, we've been free. The Passover lamb has been sacrificed. We are being delivered. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were set free. But <laughs> it's not freedom the way you, you understand freedom. First of all, freedom is not freedom to hurt other people or to be unhelpful. That's not why, you, why you've been freed. Right? All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. My freedom is sometimes, as in the guy who's sleeping with a stepmom, actually corrosive within the society. So that can't be the kind of freedom that that we're to walk in. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. If your exercise of freedom is in fact your inability to crucify your desires to put your desires to death and not be ruled by your passions well then you're not free you're just enslaved to those passions right so all things are lawful for me but if it's like I could quit any time well why don't you go ahead and quit (laughs) (laughs) this doesn't really rule me but does it does it actually rule you do you say it's freedom but it's really slavery Um, and the NIV is helpful. He says, I have the right to anything you say. They add that there to make it clear that this is an exchange, a a one-man debate. But not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now, here's where this whole section kind of gets muddied by the ESV's decision of where to put the quotes. Okay, This says... Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and then the ESV ends the quote there and puts back in on Paul's side, and God will destroy both one and the other. I highly doubt that that's would have been Paul's response. Because of the whole thing all the, the thing that he's saying here is how important what you do in the body is, because the body's very important. In the scheme of the gospel, uh in view of the resurrection the body's very important. In fact, one of the core tenets of Paul's the gospel as Paul proclaimed it, and one of the lines in the apostles' creed is the resurrection of the body. And that was actually a very controversial topic in those mm-hmm. days because people had this dualistic view of there's the immaterial and the material, and the immaterial is actually better, more pure, more holy than the material and and so there were a couple different camps, philosophical camps that operated within that dualism one was Stoicism which meant that because the body is lower then we master it, you know, we bring it under our captivity and we're ascetic you know, we can devoid ourselves, we can deprive ourselves in in pursuit of the higher less material goods, does that make sense? The other one was Epicureanism, which is eat, drink for tomorrow we die, hey, this doesn't matter anyway, so get all you can out of it. And Paul had just come from Athens where he was debating with, Luke tells us in Acts, uh, Stoics and Epicureans. And so there were, there were both of these strains going on in that time. Surely there were both of these strains at work, these strains of philosophy at work within the Corinthian church. And he says, I'm, I'm just going to preach Christ and him crucified. And so I think that the quotes end where the NIV ends them, where it says, you say, food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. Meaning the stuff of this life is of lesser value. Why does it matter? Right? If we're destined for kind of an, an immaterialist spiritual ascent, why does what matter here is why, why does why does what we eat even matter? We're free, and we can apply that freedom to kind of an Epicureanism. Oh, it doesn't matter. We'll just do what we want with our bodies. We'll eat what we want. We'll sleep with who we want. We're free in Christ. We're we're headed out of this life. And he says, and this is what he responds because it makes his response much more logical. The body, however, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And if, if, they have, if they're living in this mindset of, well, God's going to get rid of all the material aspects of our lives. And he says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. That's incompatible with the statement that God's going to destroy the body. He's going to destroy our stomachs.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Does that make sense? His whole point here is that, no, it is important what you do. It is important what you eat. Not for the reasons that you think, as we'll get into when we talk about food, sacrificed to idols. It's much more about relationships and love. But he says, but it's important what you do with your body in the case of sexual immorality, and what you put in your body, in the case of food, matter to God. Because the body was made for the Lord, not for the scrap heap. Does that make sense? Mm
3: -hmm.
0: And the Lord for the body. Whoa, this this is really, this is really powerful stuff. And God raised the Lord, his body, and he will raise us, our bodies. The future of our bodies is not to be destroyed by the Lord. The future of our bodies is to be renewed and resurrected by the Lord and for the Lord. That's the gospel. And so he says, guys, you have it all wrong. You're living in your freedom in this worldly sense of oh, all this stuff. This is, you know, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And he gets back to this in chapter 15 when, he's, when he just dives full into talking about the resurrection. He goes, yeah, the way you're living makes sense if there's no resurrection of the body. The problem is there's a resurrection of the body. And we have to live in light of that reality, and that's the eternal reality. Alright? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Paul's taking a very high, high view of the body here and trying to tell them to take a very high view of their bodies and what they do with their bodies shall i then take the members of christ and make them members of a prostitute and this was this would have been uh, tied up in the in the kind of the pagan temple worship and there was prostitution in those days it was tied with the the religion Never. You can't keep living a pagan life in the body and claim to be of the Spirit of God. Because there's no separation. There's no separation. There was no separation in our Lord, in our Lord Jesus, and there's no separation in us. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? As it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. He's saying when you are united with Christ, all of your being is his and united to him. So you can't take one part of your You can't worship him with one part of yourself and then deny him with another part of yourself. You're a whole person and your whole person has been united to the Lord. And so what you do with your spirit is every bit as important as what you do with your body. And the other way around. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. This thing that has happened when he has delivered us is he has brought us to himself. That's what it says in Exodus. I delivered you and I brought you to myself so that now you can be my people and I can be your God and I can be amongst you and in you. Flee from sexual immorality, he says. Don't lean into it. Don't excuse it. Don't tolerate it. Don't justify it. Flee it. And here's another place where I think translations can get a little weird. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. Other isn't really in Greek. And I also think that this should be in quotes. In other words, this is what their response would be. What does sin have to do with the body? That's what the the back and forth would be. What does sin have to do with the body? And he says, sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And then he says this, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. Now that's an amazing statement. Because we don't have this spiritual life with God and it's separate from our... The way that God dwells in us is by His Spirit in our bodies, like a temple. And we don't understand, we don't really have a concept of the sacred space that a temple represented, that this is where the presence of God was. This is the location of God. (laughs) But he says... That's you. You are the location of God. And what goes on in the temple is very important. It's very, there are very strict regulations, and it's, it's conducted, it's a, it's a sacred space. It's a holy space. It's a space where it's dedicated for one purpose, and that is to house divinity, to house the, and to be the place where people can connect with the spiritual realm. He says, your body is the place <laughs> where people can connect with the spiritual realm. And so what you do in your body is just as important as what the priests do in the temple. And all the regulations, all the purifications that have to happen. You are not your own. And if, if we ever needed an aspect of the gospel to just sweep through our culture... It's that statement right there. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Even your body. God wants your body. It's a weird thing to say. But he didn't just purchase your soul. He purchased your entire person with his own blood. So glorify God in your body. Isn't that good? It's, it's, you know, I thought like, hey, you know, it's men's meeting. We should have kind of a sexual purity talk. We're here at this point in, in, uh, in Corinthians. But it's not just, hey, do this, don't do this. This is an entire existential view of your body based in the gospel. And so the call isn't, hey, you know, stop lusting so much. You know, stop looking at this. It's, do you understand who you are? Do you understand that your body has been purchased by God? That God is fully invested as much as he is in the rest of the world and his creation, which is going to renew. He's just as invested in your body as he is in the rest of creation. When God formed you, when he formed you together in your mother's womb, he he was pleased with that, and that is what he is after, and we took that, and we submitted our bodies to all sorts of things, all sorts of bondage, and he's delivered us from that bondage, from our own desires, and now we have an opportunity, as the Spirit is in us, to glorify God in our bodies. So, my, the, you know, the challenge is how does that change the way you view the whole area of sexual purity? Because I think sometimes we don't take a high enough view of our bodies. Or somehow, in, in, in approaching the whole area of sexual purity, it becomes this stoic response, like we just need to kind of, you know, deny that whole area of our lives. Well, that's not true because the very next chapter, Chapter 7, is he, is he has to tell people so what we're not saying is stop having sex. He has to address now what sex is for and how it works within marriage. And he even says within marriage, you don't own your bodies. So that's, that's really the big truth that needs to come through is that there is a sexual aspect to our bodies and it doesn't belong to us, and it's for a purpose. And do we live in that area of our lives in a way that glorifies God? And there's so many different ways that that gets derailed. But do we have a vision for, this is an area of life that God is completely interested in, you know, and very invested in. We tend to think of it as like, oh, this is a whole thing that we just kind of have to tolerate and sort of shove off to the side while we do more spiritual things no we need to dive headlong into this and have a very robust view of the way that God views it because that's what Paul does he's not saying ignore this he's saying know everything about it from God's perspective and that's what he talks about you know within marriage he has to tell he has to get on married couples he's like I don't understand why you thought that the gospel meant that you guys now become married celibate people because apparently this was the Stoic side. He's addressed kind of the Epicurean side. Now he's swinging over to the Stoic side, which is asceticism, celibacy, chastity, you know. He's like, what? hold on a second. This is wrong. You can't just go and do whatever you want with your body. And this is wrong. Like, this aspect of your life plays an important role in your life. And you need, to, you need to fulfill your role in this area. And you're free to do that. Um, and so there's this whole aspect of, we've been delivered from two totally different, wrong ways of viewing sexuality, but we've been delivered into the proper view of it. And it's, it's, it has everything to do with the way that we understand our bodies in light of who God is. All right. Amen. Amen? Amen. So a lot of really interesting stuff here. I mean, he's addressing certain situations but I think we can really glean a lot of it, mostly by the way that he approaches these things and what he's revealing about his his view, his worldview. How do you approach these kinds of situations? And there's some things in here that seem contradictory. Like he's he's demanding sexual purity and then he's telling people, you need to have more sex. Like what's going on here? How, How in the world? Well, this is a divided community. And there's different philosophies around, and people are becoming proud of their philosophy, proud of their licentiousness, proud of their chastity. And he says, neither are correct. They're both puffed up. This isn't what it's for. This isn't what it's about. And he's just popping these wisdom balloons full of hot air, and he says, your body belongs to God. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit. And it's such, a, such a I think, an amazing antidote to both errors you know the immorality error and the self-righteous asceticism error i think we tend to swing between both you know we think that the answer is the answer to immorality is you know complete celibacy or, or whatever but we need to get a view of god's view of the body and a view of our own bodies. And this goes not just for sexual immorality, but for, he talks about food as well. And um, every different, all the different aspects of of life in the body. Um, We're not to live in the body in the flesh, if that makes sense. We're to live as bodies indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And uh, yeah, that's, our bodies have a future. Our bodies have an eternal future. And do we live in our bodies as if they have an eternal future? Or do we live in our bodies as if they're headed to the scrap heap at the end? Any, uh, any thoughts? Questions?
1: Yeah. <clears throat> well, it's pretty obvious, you know, he- the Corinthians were taking their brothers in the church to court. You yeah. know, with Unbelievers. Uh, I've always wondered. You know, we're supposed to love our neighbors ourselves and our neighbor includes everybody, not just unbelievers. Yeah. You know, so you know, how do you discern? I, I'm sure there are reasons to take an unbeliever to court. You know, to hold them accountable. You understand if that's what God wants. So I guess you have to use God's Word and the illumination of the Holy Spirit if something ever happens to decide how to do that. I've been in court situations as a physician, Yeah. and as a physician, uh, pretty much in my own private practice as a physician, that those were all, I think, god oriented, and justified use of the governmental system to bring his justice yeah um you know there's one other one um that i was involved in that um you know i myself did not bring the lawsuit about and probably you know if it was my own situation i would not have but i guess that's what brings that question to mind yeah You know, it has very little to do with us as God's people, as God's men. Yeah. You know, using our bodies to his glory. Yeah. Which is what this is all about. Yeah. But it does have to do with using his wisdom. Yeah. And making decisions to his glory.
0: Yeah, I think... I think that this is... This is pretty much focused on brother to brother. I mean, he's addressing the disunity within the church. And he's saying, first of all, you guys are allowing sexuality to happen and you're taking to, this is not how the God's people live together. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't know if this has much to say, if anything about use of the local judicial system that you find yourself under as, as a believer. I don't think it means live as if there's nothing like, there's not, no such thing as a human court. You know, I don't think that that's the Paul himself appealed to the laws of the land. Remember when they were beating him, and he says, "You can't do this. This is against the law. I'm a I'm a Roman citizen." Okay. You know, and then they and then they become scared. They're like, oh yeah, so um, I think Paul was a fan of <laughs> law and order for sure. I mean that's he was a law and order guy within the, within the Israelite people. Um, but he says... Here he's talking about how the way our relationships are to be conducted is on a totally different plane than the human law court. Like, how could we stoop to that? in trying to deal and work through our disagreements. He said, if you've really been presented and confronted with the word of the cross. Um, And he makes a distinction, too. He says, we're to judge one another within the church. And he says, I'm not talking about the outside world. That's its own thing. And God's got his hand on that, too, in different ways. I'm talking about you guys within the church. He's like, if you had to... yeah." Oh, no, that's, that, that was it.
2: Um, I just really appreciated uh, Well, I had two thoughts. First was, I don't think I've ever really read that section and noticed how um, Paul really easily transitions from, like, two perspectives. But and it's kind of, like, you know, judo. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, like, he first is, here's how you think about the body church you guys think about that wrong here's how you need to think about it yeah and then it's dealing with sin within the church yeah and then it's well here's how you need to think about your body you think about that on an individual level yes as well yes and here's how you need to think about it But just that he's dealing with like this you guys don't think about either of those right right and i think a lot of times it's it's easy for me to read paul and be like oh no he's always addressing Have you Always a community. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because I think we have a tendency to lean on the, well, it's just me and Jesus side yeah. of application of yeah. a lot of his letters. But, um, uh, but just like how deftly he transitions from that like, yeah. broader perspective and the wisdom, in like, you can't just deal with one of those perspectives.
0: Like, no, because, to, yeah. yeah, it's a, because the body of Christ is a body of bodies yeah. <laughs> it, it, it works on both levels
2: yeah and then uh, when you're talking about like the just the arrogance and the puffed up uh, like terminology uh, immediately popped into my mind uh, we watch a lot of like animal shows with the kids and it's like the classic like animals will actually puff themselves yeah. up. like when there's like two guys they like measure each other up. <laughs> yeah. But it's always the dominant. Yeah. so it's not just like oh I'm I'm wise it's like I'm wise and you're not Yeah. And it's, so that, that yeah. element of like domination yeah. or intimidation or That's like good. two different uh, um, and just how corrosive that is in the body as well yeah. as soon as there's any element of well I'm better than you or this faction is better yeah. than this faction is.
0: then the, yeah I mean the subject of the debate becomes irrelevant That's so often my concern when people come to me with questions or when there's, like, a debate going on within the body. I really couldn't care less about the subject until I know that both people are, you know, coming from the posture of the cross. You know, anything. Like, when we discuss our, our community life together, you know, should we or shouldn't we, people so often approach they take all sorts of different postures It's like there's I should be free to do this posture, you know my freedom's my rights posture there's the um well, this is actually what the scripture should say, and we've become very narrow, and I have the enlightened view, and those are just both puffed up,
2: you know and yeah that that was my thought is like you. That is so ingrained in our nature, oh, and yeah. I mean, you can see it in nature. Um, <laughs> to take anything and yeah. use it as yeah. leverage over someone else. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
3: Just yeah. yeah. was thinking about. you <clears throat> um, are talking about the gravity and sort of significance of that idea that our body, the physical body, is the temple that God really will come dwell in. And I've always felt like that. And this may be just my own. Non- disposition that I would grab, it. but I've always thought like the stoicism, like just so easily rejected because the means by which God brought forth his plan is like intrinsically tied to the body, can't be separated from the body, yeah. Like the, the way, and like there's no, at least in that, that we're aware of any form of like spirit form of procreation, right? Of multiplication, yeah. And even in the way that we're discipled and the way that we take on across nature requires interaction and relation with other physical humans that have like needs and there's yep. scarcity and there's all these things that are also like tied to yeah. the physical body like you, you couldn't I can't conceive of a way for God to do the work that he wants to do in us Yeah, apart from us having to live a physical existence Yeah. You know?
1: yeah yeah
0: It's weird, too, because I think both Stoicism and Epicureanism, like any philosophy, have a grain of truth, you know, and Paul says later in the letter, he says, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that it will not be dominated by anything. But it's from a motive of to glorify God with my body, Mm -hmm. not to subject my body and to degrade it and to, you know, enslave it to something. Um, and then Epicureanism you know there is, a, there is a level of freedom and enjoyment and joy that we're called to have in, a, in the proper way and I think the, when he says when he talks about gratitude eat something with thanks it actually kind of like he talks about food sacrifice to idols you give thanks to god for it and if it's in you it's out of your relationship with god there's a lot of things you can enjoy because you it's in its place it's in its proper place it's food it's just food god made us to need food and when we thank him for food we're partaking of food in the way that he designed us to take food and that's to his glory you know and i think there's there's we can glorify god in our enjoyment in our he gave us senses when we enjoy beauty and thank Him for it, when we enjoy pleasure and thank Him for it, that's a good thing, you know. But when we become enslaved, we very quickly become enslaved to pleasure and passions, and then it doesn't glorify God anymore, and it becomes, you know, something that we cling to and something that we, becomes an idol. That's the idolatry is the big, looming error in all of this. Idolatry is arrogance, idolatry is covetousness, idolatry is enslavement to pleasure, idolatry is all these things. We make something that's not God. We make it into God. We give it God's place in our Mm -hmm. life. We turn over our authority to that thing. We turn over God's delegated authority to us over to that idol, and it enslaves us. And it becomes Egypt in our lives, and God has to come in, deliver us. And bring to nothing those idols. Which is what he was doing with Egypt. He's bringing to nothing the puffed-up arrogance of man. Represented by Pharaoh. I mean, that is the the height of human arrogance. Is Pharaoh. And he just... Well, I mean it's awesome this is a great letter and it just opens up all of scripture to you to us so yeah man just want to spend a little time digging digging a little deeper smaller section hey, amen keep digging you know spend this is um, <clears throat> the more I study the the deeper it goes the more I want to study hopefully you' wet your whet your appetite a little bit. I'm glad we have so much time in, in Paul's letters
2: going forward.